0: welcome to the water people podcast i'm your host lauren hill joined by my partner dave rastovich this season is supported by patagonia whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet today we're in conversation with journalist and surfer james Nestor. James has written for Scientific American, Outside Magazine, the BBC, the New York Times, The Atlantic, and more. His first book, follows clans of extreme athletes, adventurers, and scientists as they plumb the limits of the ocean's depths and uncover weird and wondrous new discoveries that, in many cases, redefine our understanding of the ocean and ourselves. In 2020, James released his latest book, Breath, which explores the million-year-long history of how the human species has lost the ability to breathe properly, and why we're suffering from a laundry list of maladies, snoring, sleep apnea asthma, autoimmune disease, allergies, because of it. He traveled the world in an attempt to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. We acknowledge the Bundjalung Nation, the first and ongoing custodians of the land and waters where we work and play, who have lived, worked, and cared for this sea country for tens of thousands of years. Respect and gratitude to all First Nations people who continue to practice the cultural, spiritual, and educational customs of their ancestors. I was really excited to chat with James Nestor because I love his books. He is a narrative science journalist, and I loved his first book, Deep, about freediving and interacting with cetaceans, and then his second book, Breath, has just been huge for our family, as you'll hear in the podcast. Our son, Minnow, has disordered sleep breathing, so he has kind of sleep apnea, and he gets stuck in these patterns, like many children do, up to 50% of kids are chronic. Chronically mouth breathing and as many as Sixty percent of us adults are mouth breathing at night, and it's terrible for us. It's one of the precursors for so many diseases, and we could just be doing better. And so I was really excited to chat with James because he has all of these really practical ways to better our breathing that's backed by peer reviewed data.
1: Mm, Yeah, and I feel also an enthusiasm for his work because of the relationship surfers and water people have with their breath, Mm -hmm. and that given we are in situations where you exert a lot of energy and then all of a sudden you stand up on a wave and you're exerting a whole nother type of energy to pump up and down the line and ride a wave to your fullest potential sometimes we're puffed before we even get up to our feet on a wave Mm -hmm. especially around here with long point breaks and strong currents and so Mm -hmm. breathing properly um, having good recovery breath uh, resting breath understanding the cycles with our breath they're all such crucial aspects of being our best surfing selves, our best selves in general. And I really feel that that is a basic knowledge foundation for all of us to have, though so few of us do. And that's illustrated by the fact that his book, Breath, is so popular and has been received so well, is that everyone's having these aha moments about the most important thing we do every single day of our lives, every night Of our lives and so i I have that enthusiasm on that angle with with james and then also like you said he has the ability to be quite cerebral and using um, science and data and numbers and big stats and then he slips into his own story of applying some of those Uh. understandings and how challenging or rewarding that is, and he does that really well.
0: We kept encountering James' book, Breath, specifically as we were going into sort of pediatric sleep specialists, doctors, and osteopaths trying to work in different modalities with Minnow and to better his breathing. And so we grabbed the book and then we reached out to him. And I just feel really grateful to have gotten to sit down and um, chat with him firsthand. But I feel like it was one of, another one of those moments for both of us where we were just like, why do we not know this? How can we live 30, 40, 50 years, a lifetime and not understand how to breathe properly?
1: Yeah, and this makes me think of our day yesterday where we went to visit Jeff Lawton, the permacultural wizard that he is in the hills behind our home region, and we sat down to discuss a future project together which centres around basic understandings of what it is to be a human here on planet ocean, planet Earth, and that there are so many very basic things about being here in this Position on the surface of this beautiful world that we just don't know. There are so many things that have just slipped through the cracks and are overwhelmed by silly things like how to play video games and how to do our taxes and how to have a business and cars and regos and all these mundane things that we all, as adults know how to do we know how to navigate those worlds yet we don't know how to breathe properly Mm -hmm. yet we don't understand water cycles the way the moon and tides fluctuate every single day of our lives we don't know the basics of how to repair some earth in order to replant and perhaps grow food for our own bodies and our families we don't know these basic basic things Mm. that are so enriching for our lives and give us such a sense of belonging and place, and they're just not readily available. I think of all those things when I think about this conversation with James and that there are so many little strange anomalies like that where we should all know to be nose-breathing. We should all know how to calm our breath. We should all know the strategies to employ when we're sick Mm. or stressed or anxiety-ridden or about to get a pounding by a huge wave, how to dump all your air and take a big breath in in order to handle that. We should know these things. We really, really should as a very early life, fundamental aspect of understanding and being a human.
0: And it's another example of how sometimes the simplest solutions are the most powerful. Mm. If you're not going to read breath, I'll go ahead and spoil it for you, even if you are going to read breath. Basically, at the end of the book, he comes to the fact that Kind of the perfect breath. Doesn't have to be complicated. You don't need anyone to guide you through it. Doesn't cost anything. You have a chance to get better at it 25,000 times a day. <laughs> we breathe five seconds in, five seconds out. It's as easy as that. Mm.
1: Yeah, so great. I really enjoyed this conversation with James and feel like having these opportunities to speak with someone who has really gone deep on a subject and has also I guess put the knowledge through many filters and editing processes and cleaning it up and looking at a lot of material in order to come to a simple point like that at the end but seeing that in this day and age where there's so much information being thrown around in our modern world, especially on the internet, that can seem like it's really verified and and strong data, but all it is is just someone sitting kind of like us right now <laughs> in a room spouting some mind noise and then others really find that quite, uh, I guess, encouraging or convincing and will run with it. But someone like James, someone who is a studied investigative journalist has to go through that process of mm. fact-checking everything looking at things from so many great diverse angles and then at the end of that you have a book a beautiful a cherished amazing book one of the great ways to impart knowledge in our world and you can read knowing that you can chase up any of these points he's making at the back and you can follow those threads of thought and inquiry And you can get to a point where you feel that that information is really valid and valuable. Mm -hmm. And I love that about the book world. You know, I find that as someone who doesn't participate in social media, doesn't have an interest in internet knowledge in terms of building my worldview, I really appreciate people who go to the depths of authoring a book and what it takes to do that. And James is just a great example of that.
0: Mm, And on that note of books, I just wanted to put a quick mention in that we've started a little Water People newsletter, an email newsletter. Um, We've gotten lots of messages over the years asking for a book list, asking for book recommendations, or people just saying, oh, you mentioned a book in this podcast. What was it called again? So we wanted to start the newsletter basically just to be in touch more frequently, to send out book recommendations, film recommendations, podcasts that have lit us up, or Questions that we're pondering and also ways of getting involved with social and environmental activism right now. And you can sign up through our website, waterpeoplepodcast.com. There's also a link in our bio on our Instagram page. Dave has no idea what I'm talking about, um, but he will be writing for the newsletter. <laughs> Sorry, I was just listening
1: to the cicadas. I was looking straight through you. Sorry.
0: <laughs> Welcome to my world. you can sign up on the website we'll probably send out a newsletter once or twice a month just to be in touch and please feel free to respond send us your recommendations whatever's lighting you up right now in terms of books, movies people, uh, suggestions for people we should have on the podcast in the future Um, this is a community of water people and we wanted to create another way to all be able to communicate so thanks for coming along and hope you enjoy this chat with James Nestor. James, we always begin these conversations in the same place by asking about a time or experience after which you were never the same. Do you have a moment like that?
2: I have many moments like that, but I'll choose one of the many. And I think for me, if this involves water, which I have a feeling it does on this podcast, it would be diving with sperm whales. And so being able to not only free dive, which this was right when I kind of figured that out, but to be able to free dive with other free divers, some of the best free divers on the planet, which are giant sperm whales. So that really affected me. I think once you open that door, it never really closes. And I think about it a lot. what do you think of when you recollect it? I think about how I need to reorganize my life so I can do that more often. And I think about all the other people who I've met who've had this experience and have had the same reaction during and after, which is sort of a such a transformative feeling to be in the company of these intelligent, majestic animals that have been around for so much longer than we have that it sort of puts a filter on everything else you do from that moment forward in a good way and in a bad way so i think it expands your peripheral vision maybe as to what you're doing in life and what maybe you should be doing more of
1: james i've had a lot of um cetacean interactions in my life as a surfer uh, living On the east coast of australia and and surfing around the world for for many years and i also hold those encounters with cetaceans at the very forefront of my mind and my body my memories and i try every winter season when the humpbacks migrate past our section of coastline here at home to take friends out and i have a little hydrophone i drop it over the side of my boat and i uh, put the headphones on my friends ears and just watch them melt watch them come alive however many words you would I'm sure be able to uh, describe it far better than I being a wordsmith but I just watch people have such a deep and enlivening experience and I'm just wondering what are some of your thoughts around that why was that the first thing that you shared with us
2: I think that humans have good at done a really good job of always assuming that we are the smartest and most omnipotent life form that's ever been here on earth or in the universe you know we we say that nothing as as intelligent as we are and you know nothing's better no no other animal has anywhere near the technology that we have but it's it's easy to to say that when you're looking through the binoculars of of human vision but it's something different when you start to actually expand your mind and understand that even the language that we're seeing of or hearing of cetaceans that's only a very teeny little fraction of it because our hearing is so limited and our vision is so limited we can't see you know uv radiation we can't see infrared other animals can see uh, in a much broader spectrum than we can. and they can hear and communicate in a much broader spectrum. And dolphins are an example. We hear this squeaking, you know, we hear this clicking, and we think oh, thats that's so cool. Listen to the, all that. We're hearing the smallest little fraction of what they're actually saying, what they're actually doing. So I think that with all of our technologies, it's kind of a shame that we haven't spent more time, looking into animal communication, uh, trying to crack the code. And in some ways, we're at the same place as we were 50 years ago. There was a lot more research going into this 50, 60 years ago than there is today. So it's kind of sad, but at the same time, hopefully these technologies will be able to become more accessible to more people and citizen scientists can do it instead of waiting around for a researcher to do it.
0: To dive in a little more specifically, can you share the story about the corrupted whistle that went cetacean viral?
2: <laughs> God, this was so long ago. Oh, good for you for bringing that up. Yeah, so a lot of cetaceans communicate in in whistles or clicks, and dolphins in particular are really good at whistling, and most of these whistles are in this very smooth sine wave so it's this very smooth curve imagine a like a rolling hill that's what the audio signal looks like on a spectrogram when when we analyze it but uh, one of the researchers i was working with freelance citizen science researcher thought huh i wonder if since dolphins can both speak these sine waves and and uh, hear them as well because dolphins have different names right they're, they're able to exchange different names in these in these whistles what if you sent them a square whistle a square wave so a a form of communication that has never been recorded before would would they be able to to adopt it and communicate it back and so that's what this researcher did i mean he was this was the level of his technology he was putting like a cell phone in a ziploc bag and going down there and uh, using that as his speaker still works, you know, uh, just doesn't lost a few phones in the process. But he found that when he communicated this square wave, not only did were they able to to hear it, but they were able to then transmit it to one another. And when he was back in the water months later, they they shot that signal, his name back to them, back to him. And to a lot of people, this seems, oh, this is incredible. Until you look at all the research that was happening in the 50s and 60s, that's probably still going on now, that's top secret, where dolphins can do all this kind of stuff. You know, they're way ahead of us, I believe, on on the language front by far. And that was just one fun example, something that anyone can do and and experience.
0: (laughs) Your first book... Deep, that that story is chronicled in um, a beautiful book that you wrote called Deep, is really about breath holding. And your second book, Breath, is about refining breath, particularly the exhale. I'm curious to know if there was a direct trajectory from one book to the next.
2: I wish I was smart enough to like plot out my life like this (laughs) so I would know where I would be from, from year to year and the weird thing about this is i literally i did not see this connection until people started bringing this up yes uh you know the first book there's a lot of free diving there's some breath holding but it's really about the human connection to the ocean from the surface to the very bottom of the sea not just about free diving even though there's a lot of free diving in it because that's a great way of connecting with with the life forms there but it was through these freedivers not the competitive freedivers but this whole other group of freedivers that i learned of these other powers of breathing that you could use breathing to heat your body up and you could use breathing to cure yourself of many common maladies Uh, seems impossible until you look at the science and it's totally straight up so one book kind of led to the other but not consciously an author told me this years ago he's just like you know every writer's books it's just like you're smoking a cigarette and you're lighting the next cigarette off that cigarette and maybe that's a really bad analogy for a book about healthy breathing but i see that now and and uh maybe smart entrepreneurial people can do that on purpose and plot out the 20 years of their life but i just kind of go with the flow and, and see what what comes up and what's what's legit and what i want to spend years and years studying and that that was a really natural transition for me
1: and how is that transition going for you james in terms of your own health because that was a big part of both of those books your journey from the issues you had with your body at the beginning and how perhaps you transformed so many of those challenges that your body was going through where are you at now with that
2: yeah, it's funny. You know, I never wanted to have any of that in these books. And uh, I hate reading nonfiction books that the writer, the author has to always pop his or her head in and tell you about themselves. It just really annoys me. Um, So there was a lot of fisticuffs with me and the editors, but they wanted that to be in there to just kind of show, give a little context. Uh, So we took out as as much as I, I possibly could, but give a little context. And the context that I was trying to communicate is that the problems that I was having weren't, thankfully, some rare genetic disease. It was the problems that the vast majority of people on this planet are having. So I was just trying to demonstrate that, you know, I'm as susceptible as the stuff as everyone else. And the fact that I'm getting these things means that other people are too. They probably just don't realize it. What I mean by that is you're talking about respiratory issues mouth breathing at night having bronchitis especially if you're a surfer in a cold climate that's pretty common out here maybe mild pneumonia from time to time and i kept being told that this was normal you know year after year i was given a fistful of antibiotics sent on my way the pills work so they absolutely do but they're not a permanent solution so you know the breathing i specifically did not put this in the book and i don't talk about this very often but all the issues that i had i have not had since so for me personally it was completely transformative respiratory issues haven't had bronchitis haven't had uh, pneumonia of course i get colds you know and get the flu on occasion but have not had any respiratory issues i was having them all the time the reason i did not put that in the book is I don't want to say just because this worked for me, it's going to work for everybody else. Everybody's different. So, uh, you know, but we do know with, with breathing is you can only benefit from it. I don't know anyone who's learned how to breathe better and has had negative side effects from that. So you can benefit a little or you can benefit a whole lot.
1: Like I did.
0: Mm, We were especially excited to chat with you, James, because our five-year-old has sleep apnea. We still co-sleep most of the time. And, um, I know I long for the nights when he breathes quietly. I don't know for people who are listening if you've slept next to someone with sleep apnea, but just imagine waking up like five or 10 times a night with your child choking or gasping for breath. And that's punctuated by extended breath holds when as a mother, my body gets really alert waiting for that next breath to come. So anyway, I've spent a lot of, nights laying awake and listening to breathing patterns over the last five years. And it's taken a while to find um, a doctor and specifically a functional dentist who took my concern seriously, who got us onto a sleep test. Um, And I was just looking at the data uh, about the links between um, disordered sleep breathing and ADHD and how many kids end up being medicated um, because of perceived ADHD when in fact they have disordered sleeping. And that often presents in children as hyperactivity, whereas adults might be sleepy in the day, kids just go a bit cuckoo and their brains aren't able to focus in places where that's required, like school. Um, You've written about how you had sleep apnea, have sleep apnea. You were referring to that before. Can you talk us through the wide-reaching impact of disordered breathing and why so many of us specifically have lost the ability to breathe properly?
2: So I'm happy you brought this up because this is one of the most underdiagnosed things out there. I was just at a conference this last weekend talking about this more and more with, with a whole group of people who've had the same experience that you've had So for some reason, we've built a medical system that is really good at prescribing different pills, different powders, different therapies. Those things absolutely work, okay? There's a time and place for all of that. They're terrible for an intervention for sleep disordered breathing. Uh, I I can't tell you how many letters, I have some of them up on my wall here, uh, that I get uh, every week. I've probably gotten thousands now from parents saying the same thing, Where, where the kid has ADHD, the kid's 12 years old, still wetting his bed. No one knew what to do. For the last five years, they've been on Ritalin, they've been on sleeping pills. Nothing's working. The parents finally look at the kid's breathing. It's a complete disaster. Fix that. All the problems go away. And they're happy, but they're also completely pissed off that it took them reading a book by, by a journalist instead of hearing this from a doctor. So this is a huge problem and it's getting worse. So I only had sleep apnea, as far as I know, and I've been tracking my sleep for a long time, once in my life. That's when I forced myself to become a mouth breather at the Stanford experiment. Uh, When I became a mouth breather, I got sleep apnea and I snored throughout most of the night. When I converted back to nasal breathing, all of it went away. I'm not saying that's going to be the same with everybody. Everybody's different. But what we do know is this is becoming a enormous epidemic for kids. It affects the development of how tall they're going to grow. It affects their bone development. It affects their brain development and more. Because growth happens at night. And if you're stressed out at night, that growth is not going to happen the same way it would otherwise. So why did this happen? <laughs> that, that's a there's a huge explanation. I, I wrote a wrote a book about it. The short version is, so no one needs to buy the book is is that industrialization, specifically industrialized food has shrunk our mouths so much that our teeth growing crooked. That's why our teeth growing crooked because we have small mouths and our ancestors did not. With a small mouth, smaller airway, breathing problems, more susceptible to sleep apnea and snoring. The good news is once you diagnose it, once you find out what the issue is, you can fix it. And that's really what the book is about. It's not to bitch and moan about how we screwed ourselves up, but it's like, okay, this is what we have done wrong. This is the big problem. How do we fix it? And let's focus on
1: that. James, I've got a bit of a personal question in regards to swimming as an option to correct asthma and breathing issues in kids. In Australia, I don't know if you're aware of it, but a lot of kids are just sent to the local swimming pool to, to do laps when you've got asthma. And it worked on me as a kid. But you are still mouth breathing when you're swimming. Have you come across any info or any insights into why that would still work so well for us even though we are mouth breathing while we swim.
2: It's a really good question. I looked into this in the book and found nothing clear. My hypothesis, and to be clear, this is my hypothesis, okay, it's not not a scientific thing is when you're swimming, especially when you're like a kid and you're taking a breath and you're going under and then you're taking a breath again, you're increasing your tolerance for carbon dioxide. And what they've found is a common link between kids and adults with asthma and or with panic and other disorders is they can hold their breath for about three seconds before they go (laughs) because they associate breath holding with an attack and they don't want to have an attack so they condition themselves to breathe like this (sighs) constantly constantly breathing you can't breathe that way in a swimming pool right you have to take a breath even if you're swimming strokes you're holding your breath while you're swimming strokes. If you're doggy paddling and swimming up and down, you're holding, you're conditioning your body to become more comfortable with holding your breath. So we do know as CO2 tolerance goes up, which is to say, as you can hold your breath longer, more comfortably, asthma symptoms tend to go down. So much so that I have met dozens and dozens of people who had debilitating asthma, who no longer suffer from any symptoms of asthma, simply by learning different processes of breath holding and breath control. So I would venture to say swimming fits into it in that way. I will say one other thing really got me rolling here is swimmers also who don't have asthma can develop asthma at a higher incidence than someone else because of the chlorine in the pool. Swimmers tend to get asthma that way. So it's both a cure, but it's also a contributor to the problem. I think if you swim in the ocean, that's the best place to do any swimming anytime. So do that and you can kill two birds that way. Mm
0: -hmm. One practice that your book, Breath, really inspired was observing mouth breathing all around us all the time, walking through a supermarket, walking through the middle of town and just looking and noticing how many of us are... Breathing through our mouths, um, you go into great detail about the impact of that mouth breathing on us. Can you, can you recap a little bit of that science for people who maybe aren't familiar with the ill health-inducing impact of mouth breathing?
2: Sure. So breathing through your mouth on occasion is totally fine, right? So if you're laughing, breathing through your mouth, if you're doing really extreme workouts, Sometimes breathing through the mouth, you know, you're about to suffer a debilitating hold down from a big wave, like take a take a huge breath through your mouth. That's all great. What I was trying to focus on in the book is, is chronic mouth breathing, what you're doing the rest of the time that you're not in those states of laughter or an extreme fitness And it turns out that, you know, up to 50% of kids are chronically mouth breathing and more than 60% of us at night breathe through our mouths. And so people say, well, who cares? I have a mouth. I should be able to breathe through it. You can if you want, but it's extremely different than... Breathing through your nose. When we breathe through the nose, we're slowing down air. We are filtering it. We're humidifying it. We're treating it and conditioning it so that by the time it reaches our lungs, that air is much more purified. You know, our noses are the first line of defense. And for people with asthma or panic, it really slows down the breath and it makes it harder to hyperventilate. It's no coincidence that most asthmatics are mouth breathers. That's just the most people who suffer from panic are mouth breathing. So we wouldn't have evolved this incredibly intricate organ randomly. All those very detailed and specifically constructed little parts of our nose serve a purpose, and that's to protect us. So mouth breathing is really essential to good health.
0: How do we transition from being mouth breathers to being nose breathers? I know for our son, after a cold or a flu or something, he gets locked into this pattern of mouth breathing. And with a five-year-old, it's incredibly challenging and frustrating. And I find myself becoming the mother that I never wanted to be nagging about. Breathe through your nose. Breathe through your nose. Breathe through your nose. How? Which ways have you found most successful to aid that transition?
2: Well, depending on what age the kids are, and I've spoken a lot of schools, kids don't care about health, right? You don't have to really worry about that until you're older, but they care about how they look. Maybe a five-year-old doesn't, but just wait till you get into your teens. Show them pictures of people who are chronic mouth breathers versus people who are nasal breathers, show them what happens to your face, show them that they will be significantly, I won't say less attractive. They will have a significantly more retronathic profile, which may be (laughs) some attractive to some people, you know, but, but it really dramatically affects how your face grows and that seems to really scare kids into doing it for For teenagers it works awesome and then they're dedicated to breathing through their noses for young kids you know it's no coincidence that a lot of respiratory problems develop after a bad cold or a bad flu that's how a lot of asthma develops from that for i would make it more of a game you know maybe reward this guy when he's nasal breathing for for a couple hours i don't know if you've seen myotape Uh, i have no financial stake in any of this stuff by the way i think it's a great product it goes around the mouth and it trains kids to they can open their mouth at any time they can even use it while while eating but just trains them to keep their mouth shut this is especially important at night. So even if someone is a nasal breather in the daytime, at night, if you're a mouth breather, that's when growth happens, right? Um, so you're influencing how you're looking every single night you you go to sleep. So I think it's especially important at night. I think that myotape helps. Uh, I think a reward system could help. I think... You know, just making them more conscious, uh, they'll feel different if they're if they're nasal breathing as well. Humming is a great exercise, singing songs while humming because that increases nitric oxide, opens up the nose. So every kid's different; every way of convincing a kid to do anything is different. But I try a few few different things and see what works.
0: We um, we find balloon blowing up can be quite helpful to do intensively, and also we've gotten on to um well we. Dave specifically um, entices Minoa with um, the way Tony Hawk does things because Minoa really likes to skateboard. So we talk a lot about how Tony Hawk skates so well because <laughs> yes. he does it with <laughs> breathing through his nose. And we also so have. True, <laughs> we have an oral appliance too. We've gone down that route, so he um, is kind of the breath is directed through his nose more directly.
2: And it will be easier, you know, once his palate develops wider, it will be easier for him to become a nasal breather. Just get him up to, you know, 10, 11 when he starts worrying about his looks, showing those pictures. And I'm I'm telling you, it works, works pretty well. From what I, I'm, I've never been on TikTok ever, but apparently all this Gen Z people are just posting stuff about, you know, proper tongue posture now. Nasal breathing, what it what it does to your jawline, what it does. And I think it's great. If that's what it takes to get people to shut their mouths, then it's
0: yeah. cool. Uh, we've <laughs> also had really great luck with boteco yeah. breath work. There's mm-hmm. free exercises online. I'll post a link to that. We found those the most fun and engaging way to have a five year old do breathing exercises. Yeah. And we do them too.
2: And the good part of that is that Buteyko exercises, which are just essentially breath retention, breath-holding exercises, they're really good for being in the water too, whether you're a freediver, whether you're a surfer, whether you're a swimmer, because they condition your lungs, they allow you to tolerate more CO2, they allow more oxygen to get into all of your cells throughout your body, and so everybody wins with that. Those exercises, a lot of them are not pleasant, I'm sure you're, you're realizing, Breath holding is not pleasant, but if you make a game out of it and if you see the results from that, I think people become a little more convinced.
1: I'm I'm really grateful that we've gotten to dive into this and I can totally back up what you're saying, James, about the teenagers because at our local skate park a while ago, I was there with our little boy and I had to go pee. So, I went to the toilet and in the toilet's written on the Side of the wall was you know Billy Bob or someone someone's name, and it said Billy Bob is a mouth breather. <laughs> and I co- couldn't wait to run out and tell Lauren that that was like a slur. You know, like that's that's just totally proves your point about the teenagers. Not many slurs are like rooted in
2: science, <laughs> but that one is like you don't want to be the mouth breather at school, kids. So if you're out there listening. Take our word for it.
1: Zip the lip now, you'll be happier later on in life. Yeah, yeah it's another meaning to the loose lips sink ships line, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, <you> <laughs> I'm stoked we went there, and I'm really itching to go back to the cetacean realm. Um, because Can it, I ask
0: a question before you okay, go there? Sure. You're a few years out from writing breath. I was really curious to know what practical learnings about breathing have stuck with you and what difference they've made in a practical sense, in your own life.
2: Yeah. You know, when people ask this question, they expect me to come up with some extremely mysterious, convoluted, detailed answer, because that just makes it all seem that much more legitimate. But I'm going to really bore you here and say the most simple, pragmatic steps will make the biggest difference by far. I think The most important one is to become an obligate nasal breather. Everyone's just like, yeah, you already said that 20 times. But it's one thing to say it, one thing to do it. It can take a lot of work to get there. You'll feel the difference. Sometimes it's weeks or months. I think breathing slower I think becoming conscious of how you're breathing when you're walking and exercising. A good one to do is in for four steps, out for six steps. Just try walking around that way for a half an hour. See how you feel. And if you want to really bump it up a bit, breathwork practices, hyperventilation practices, Kriya, Wim Hof method, pick whatever you want. Science is very clear on those. I get a lot out of doing Kundalini practice, various pranayamas, and I think other people do as well. So you can't just as Westerners, we just want to like go from zero to a hundred all the time. So when people hear about this, they're like, yeah, oh, sign me up, dude, three day retreat. I want to go all the way. You have to get the pragmatics down before you can do that. Otherwise you're going to be breathing wrong. You're only going to get half of what you could get out of this otherwise. So those are the, my go-tos. I know that's probably not what you wanted to hear, but, uh, those are the things that That work for me. You can make it as complicated or simple as you want.
0: Are you still wearing an oral appliance at night?
2: Such a good question. You know, I wasn't. I did that as kind of a journalistic experiment and experience for a year. I did it. I was religious about it. We took that scan before and after. I had all this crazy bone growth and airway growth. And then about five months ago, I heard from Ted Belfour. I was going to New York. He's like, Well, how's it going? you know, you've been wearing it for three years now. And I'm like, ah, no, I haven't. I've been wearing it for, you know, I wore it for years. So I took a, a a couple of years off, but he convinced me to get back on it. So I took another scan. This was about two and a half months ago. And I'm going to, in the new year, I'm giving myself till the first, and then I'm going to put that stinking thing back in my mouth for a year uh, at night and see what happens. It's only at night.
0: How did the scan go? Did it show the retention of that growth that you grew?
2: It, it did, it. Yeah, yeah, surprisingly it did. Wow. It was, you know, just like with, with natural aging, some areas were starting to de- deteriorate a little bit, but most of it stuck. And from what he told me and what another researcher told me is, once you start generating that, the body's just like, oh, okay, I can't shut this down. This is just part of the factory now that we have to keep building. So I'm curious, I don't think anyone's ever done this where they've hopped on it hopped off for two and a half years and hop back on so it'll be fun i mean looking at the results it won't be too fun wearing this thing every night but uh you know that's life i I got a lot of benefits from it so uh i'll let you know next year what happens Mm.
0: sounds good
1: that's great well good on you for doing those experiments for the rest of us to learn from too (laughs) very kind
0: Apologies for interrupting the conversation, but we'd like to take a moment to recognize the generous folks who help make this podcast possible. Sunbutter Skincare is committed to protecting people and the planet. They make vegan reef-safe SPF-50 sunscreen packaged in reusable and recyclable tins. They're also the world's first certified palm oil-free sunscreen brand. Check out sunbutter.com.au to learn more about their skin and ocean-friendly lines of sunscreen, surf zinc, and skincare. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts, who make cosmic surfboards for cosmic people. Gaza's boards combine recycled and plant-based materials that are built to last, without sacrificing performance. To learn more, head to Concepts.com.
1: The cetacean world is a special one for me. The, the encounters I've had that just don't seem to fit neatly into a, a very rational, logical sort of explanation seem to just always be happening with these creatures. And I was just wondering if you had continued any, I guess, inquiries or adventures in that world since the end of your book, Deep um i wish i have had more time to spend on more of
2: the research side you know i spent a lot of time months and months helping to boot up this thing called project seti which was awarded a, a tedx audacious prize and now has a lab set up in dominica and and five years of funding um so that was cool and now that's kind of on autopilot i had to kind of step out of that um the academic world and academic infighting and academic egos are just not where I want to be. I really hope that those guys focus on the animals and less about. Themselves, <laughs> um, and I think that's going to happen. There's some really good people involved in that. So on the research side, less so. On on a personal side, I was just out in the Azores a couple months ago with Fred Boyle, who was a character in in deep. Um, so it's it's cool, like meeting these people ten years ago, still being in contact. And lo and behold, the first thing we did was get in his boat and go dive with some rays and some fish and some sharks and it was just like you know no time had had passed and that's such a special place for me to be in the water to be away from everything away from my phone away from computers and just be locked into that zone i don't get that opportunity as often as i like in San Francisco, there's really no free diving here. And I've been all you know traveling and researching with a completely different project. So it's at the top of my mind whenever I'm in a place that has clear water. It's the first thing I'm looking up. How
1: do I get a wetsuit? How do I get someone with a boat? How do I get in the water and, and mm. take a dive? Mm. I'm really interested in the area of tech and technology and putting it in its place in our modern world, not assuming that it should always be present in all of our endeavors. And I really loved in deep the adventures of freedivers and the world of research joining together. And I just wondered if you would be able to share a little bit of that for people who are listening who may not have read your book.
2: Sure. This is one thing that's continues to be pretty frustrating to me is the academic world, uh, people who have been taught that they cannot get in the water with the animals they're researching and view that as, as illegal um, and is unethical. Uh, they are still in power and resisting this. So even with this new project, freediving was a big part of it. I don't think it's ever going to see the light of day. I think these other people who live their life they're marine researchers, but live their lives on, on the deck of a boat, you know, in a fleece jacket. And I know that because I hung out with them for years. I'm not saying they're doing bad research, but my God, don't you want to be connected with the thing that you're studying? And I think that there's different kinds of information you can get when you are having your own communication with one of these Life forms. There's there's stuff that you can do outside of it where they don't know you're there that's very valuable, but there's something extremely valuable of being face to face with them and having them interact with you that will always be disavowed um, through the larger academic circles. The reason is I think because a lot of marine biologists don't know how to free dive. And I think that they're threatened by the people that do. Uh, I can say this because I'm not a marine biologist. <laughs> They're not going to take away my, you know, my license or whatever. But uh, it's extremely frustrating that we're, you know, at the cusp of mass extinction in the water. And these people are still having these weekend long conferences. uh ridiculing pre-divers and ridiculing citizen scientists who are trying to move this thing forward in a
1: different way Mm. it makes me think of the skeletal system in cetaceans and the hand like bone structure in their fins and the myth and you know it's kind of cringy the new the new age circles that speak of you know, mystic cetacean messages and everything, um, and it is, it's a bit cringy, I find myself going there all the time, but that is one area that I just have to, my mind just goes to, is thinking about that ability to have hands, to create tools, to manipulate your local environment to such an extent that it becomes detrimental to oneself, that you look at cetaceans and those bones, and if there was a point in time in their evolution where they realized it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth having those. It wasn't worth creating iPads, iPhones, cars, combustion engines, all of that stuff. It, it's just an area to me that seems like a great area to dream and wonder. And I just was wondering if you think along those lines or think anything like that at all. Yeah. You know, it is something I thought about because a lot of people say, well, if whales are
2: so smart, you know, why don't they make a nuclear bomb? You know, why don't they uh, destroy all the ships that are destroying them? And if you start evaluating and considering a species intelligence by their ability to kill one another at a mass scale, then you could say something like, you know, cancer's much more intelligent than humans because it's destroying everybody all over the planet. So I just don't think that's a good measure, you know, to say, well, you know, we've got uh, skyscrapers and Tesla's. And what do they have? They're just cruising around the ocean. I hear this stuff all the time. And, you know, it's not an accident that a whale's brain is six times the size of ours. People say, well, they need that to control their body. That is complete bullshit. They need a look at a whale shark. Its brain is the size of a human fist and it controls its body just fine. So they have a different level of technology. And language that is very likely so far beyond anything we can fathom. And just because we can't understand it or identify it yet doesn't mean it's not there. And so I don't think that you can use these material comparisons to look at intelligence. They've been around for what, 50 million years in their same form perfect stewards of their environment, perfect stewards of their population, living in harmony with everything else, that to me is the biggest sign of intelligence. And they're schooling us in that department. Beautifully
1: said.
0: Your books are often filled with characters who lead you to deeper understandings of whichever subject you're investigating. James, I was wondering if you could tell us about a time when you followed a lead, but... It went totally askew, or maybe the understandings that you gleaned were too out there for your publishers to let you include in a book.
2: Well, I've got about 600 pages of notes behind me in my office, in my very red, amber-hued <laughs> office.
1: <laughs> yes, sauna.
2: Um About 90% of the research I do, probably more than that, is cut from the book, including interviews including following leads with people. Sometimes the information's kind of interesting, but the story's very boring. Sometimes the story's very exciting, but the science doesn't check out. So the funnest part of my job is when you have no filter and you talk to absolutely everyone, and that's what I focus on doing. I will talk to everybody hear everyone's story, at least for a little amount of time, and then sort of weed it out from there and so all all books are like that you can't t- to think that i just happen upon each of those interviews and each of those books randomly and those were the first people i called is not the case uh there's so many other people behind that a lot of people get pissed off when you know i spend a day interviewing them they're like where's my interview and uh you know these are just the decisions you you have to make so it happens all the time but I don't mind that process. People think it's, well, you waste so much time. I don't think that's wasted time because you talk to 10 people and if one of those interviews is just rock solid and those people are solid, then, you know, you've done your work to find the the diamond in the rough there and and the person that you want to spend weeks or months learning about various Mm. levels.
0: We recently had surf filmmaker Nathan Oldfield on the podcast, and he spoke a lot about the challenge of trying to balance his day job as a school teacher uh, with his dream job of being a full time filmmaker. What has that trajectory looked like for you making writing your full time gig?
2: Well, it wasn't for a very long time. I had a respectable job at a respectable company, wearing respectable clothes and respectable shoes. And I did that for years and years and just wrote stuff on the side. You know, um, I wrote things on weekends. I wrote things at night. I was just writing magazine stories because I loved it because you could fall into these worlds. You'd have an excuse to go interview these people and travel and go have these adventures and come back and write about them. But you didn't have to live in that world for too long. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I also realized that there was absolutely no way you could make a living doing it. Maybe if I live somewhere else, but San Francisco is very expensive. And, you know, I wanted to be able to support the things that I like to do. So it wasn't until like 10 years or something of doing this moonlighting that I finally had enough work that that I cut the cord. And then I just wrote for for magazines. The books happened organically. I never thought I'd be writing books. They just the stories got too big for magazines and they became books and, you know, so kids out there, don't, don't follow my path. It's filled with misery, long nights, wondering where your next paycheck's going to come. But, you know, I just, I felt a calling to it and it's something that I never take for granted. Now I think that's the, the good part is I appreciate it every day that I'm able to do what I do.
1: And considering all of that, what do you read? Who do you read? that keeps you afloat among all of that considering you say it's you know kids don't don't choose this it's full of misery what do you what keeps you afloat uh it's it's funny because when
2: i'm not working on something i'm so sick of reading that i just read shorter things i read mag i still read magazines i'm one of those weirdos and i read things that i can finish in one sitting because i don't want things sitting around i don't want the feeling like it's it's there it's like you forgot to read me it's time to read me i don't want that onus so nothing uh very interesting uh again i I read sunday papers review sections of sunday papers and, and a lot of magazine stuff when i'm working on a project i which is most of my life, I'm reading things exclusive to that field and I'm reading them all the time. O- occasionally, I'll, if I'm on long flights, I'll find a fiction book, definitely not a nonfiction book to relax into. I try not to read things that are too closely associated with what I'm working on because I notice it rubs off on you too much and you either feel uh, inadequate or you feel like you're ripping someone off. And I just think that that's a, a bad zone to be in. But when you're reading fiction, it sort of sparks that creative side of your brain to want to bring some of the, the mystery and adventure of a fiction story into nonfiction and, you know, keep the movement there. I Most of the books I read, this is going to sound really judgy and shitty, but they're extremely boring. Uh, they're filled with great information, but they're really boring. So... All scientific papers, the information is thrilling, but my God, they're so hard to read and they're so boring. So that was a terrible answer. Edit. We're going to redo that one. What am I reading today,
1: uh, James Patterson? I'm reading, you know, James stories about the ocean. I'm
2: just reading books associated with the wonder of the ocean. Plug Why do you
1: even pick up a magazine or a book, James? Given that they're, you know. An, I assume you've seen how in the surfing world they've all just dematerialized. There's just there's nothing there anymore, and that that was such a joy for a lot of us to sit on the toilet and read a surfing magazine or whatever. Well, Surfers Um, Journal, Surfers Journal is still flying the flag. So yeah, it is. Yeah, it's true. They're there. What's the point of doing that? Like right now, when everyone has the (laughs) opportunity to read, you know, streams and streams of streams of Of text on a screen or to just hold one book that has one idea that someone has deeply dived into like yourself what motivates you to to go to that world to keep turning up in that world
2: i think because of what you said we're so focused on the bullet points but the bullet points are important okay those are the things a lot of people remember but unless you understand the context behind these bullet points you're never going to remember this crap ever so especially i've noticed when it comes to health read a health book it's just filled with bullet you do this you do this you have to have this at this time that you do this this and like cool 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 yeah it makes sense makes sense okay yeah i'm all into it next chapter i've completely forgotten it so i think that it's easier to to tell someone a story about something that puts them front and center right this is about their bodies and allows them to explore the world that that story came from that that hack that that health tip came from so that they retain it this sounds super cliched but if you paint a visual picture of a mouth breather of whatever people will retain that rather than being scolded a lot of books science books like to scold you health books you're doing this all wrong man come on eat this way like no carbs so uh, i I just think it's a different way of telling stories. I don't know if it's too fitting of, of these times things are changing, but at the same time, maybe we've reached peak bullet point and people want to slow down into something. Uh, I think one thing that was really inspiring for me, you could say this about movies or miniseries or whatever people like, Oh, it's just all crap. It moves so fast. You can't retain anything. They're not immersing you in these worlds. And then my octopus teacher comes out, the simplest story, slowest story in the world and blows everyone's mind. And it's going to stay with people for a very, very long time. So it's harder to do that. It takes a lot of time and patience, but I think people retain it. And it's it's much more fun for me than to write bullet points to immerse myself in these worlds. And... A lot of the worlds are stale, but some of them are really, inter- in my opinion, are really interesting. And if I'm interested in it, and my editor's interested in it. We think, huh? Maybe someone else might be interested in it as well.
0: Mm. <laughs> oh, our brains are hardwired for the narrative arc, aren't they? They they resonate <laughs> okay. in way in ways that uh, in ways that data doesn't quite land. James, I was so curious to ask you. You're speaking about the you know the time and the dedication it takes to put these books together, to wade through the research. How do you know when the story is the one that you're willing to devote years of your life to? Is is it a gut feeling? Is it a sense? Is it just that all the science is aligning? What is it for you?
2: Well, I have two answers to this. So writing a book, I've always sort of compared it to packing for a big trip you were never done packing for a big trip. You can have your suitcase open and go, oh, I'm going to take this out. Oh, I'm going to put this one in. You kind of need someone to police you. Uh, you need an editor you can really trust that says it's time to turn off the faucet. Okay. And it's time to, to look at what you've had here and start doing the real work. So a lot of people put off the writing work because they just want to constantly research. Um, so there's, different ways of writing, but there's, there's writing books that are like of this moment and you got to get them out real quick. And those are big money makers, and they're, they're great. But I couldn't imagine, especially having worked like a real job to then dedicate five years of my life writing and pursuing something that I wasn't interested in. I think you can pick up these books and you can tell within a f- few lines if someone's dialing it in. And I hate that feeling. It feels like I'm being ripped off. So uh, it has to be something that I'm utterly fascinated with and that I really want to understand better. And that takes years and years to find these these subjects, which is why I think one of the reasons I didn't write, I didn't even think about writing a book because I never thought I'd have a, a subject that was good enough for for writing a book, you know, until it presents itself. I don't think you can find these either. I think that you have to be out in the world and they come to you and they develop on their own.
0: What's capturing your imagination right now?
2: Mm. So I'm finally, uh, you know, this last book, Breath, has been out for a couple of years. I've basically been on tour for for two years, uh, which has been incredible and awesome. Um, but I'm at the state now where I really want to come into my dark, weird office here, turn it all off and to Get back into a, a deeper, slower, focused zone, and I usually don't talk about stuff I'm I'm working on. But I'm I found something. It's found me actually because I was not looking for it. That is absolutely blowing my mind right now that I wake up every single day and I'm so frustrated with all the other crap I have to do because all I want to do is to get deeper into this world. So it feels great to sort of, I have the luxury of doing that, of flipping the switch um, into writing mode and, and man, I love it. I just love, I love the travel. I love the research. I love talking to these people. I love the process and
1: I've missed it. So it feels good to be back home. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Do you put the red light on when you need to write like that? Is that <laughs> your comfort? It's not comfort a color? freaking red light. I don't know.
2: So You know what? I'm going to show you my – anyone listening at home, I'm going to show you my light. You can see this is an owl. It's a
0: ceramic oh, yeah. owl.
2: On top of it is a regular lamp. It's not a sexy
0: red, red. bulb inside of you.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my wife was get, was getting rid of this, and I
1: said, "You're not getting rid of that."
2: <laughs> you saw it, it's, and now you see it, really and I'm all now. red.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You've so a lot of sun in San Francisco. It's a very sunny place. That's <laughs> right. Weird is going on. Right? So, way. is your relationship with your editor really horrible? Is it like the check-in person at the airlines that makes you pay for all your excess baggage, and you, you curse them? Or is it different than that?
2: My, you know, strangely, and this is a real rarity, my agent is my editor and my confidant. And I've, she's been my agent for 12 years. A lot of agents are like realtors, they just want to move stuff and sell stuff off. But she is the best editor I've, I've ever worked with. I hope she's not listening to this. That'll be really embarrassing. Um, also, it's inflate her ego. She'll go elsewhere. So <laughs> I, I won't share this with her if you don't but uh she is she's the one that tells me when to shut up when to when to do this when to do that i sometimes push back a little bit but she's almost always right and so i listen to her um and i really think if if i didn't have her and her acumen and she cares passionately about books about the process of writing books about her writers' careers, and uh, that means a lot. She's a friend, and uh, yeah, uh, I would like to think that I would know when to stop, but I, I probably wouldn't. I never know when to stop packing my bag, and so mm. I probably wouldn't mm. wouldn't know when to stop writing a book.
0: Mm. James, what role does surfing or getting in the water play? In the midst of research and crafting a new book.
2: I have this, is, God, I'm just filling you guys up with cliches today, but I really do come up with the best sort of breaks to problems when I'm out in the water, when you're not in front of the computer, when you're not trying. I think that's typical of other people who get that while they're jogging. So I don't think that's very unique, but it's something that I connect with that resets me in so many ways. Um, you know, I'm here in San Francisco, it's really, really cold now, but there's something nice about that too, because you can be out alone in the water in a city, you know, it's still 15 minutes from, from my house and then I'm back in the city. So it's, it's just something that's ever present, uh, with me and we're plotting, you know, possibly to move away for a a, a little bit. And the very first thing that comes to mind, it was like, okay, Let's look at where the surf breaks are. Let's look at our proximity to the ocean. And then those are the places I I consider moving to. It's getting harder and harder though. I mean, my God, everything is crowded everywhere. I just think of 20 years ago. I think of now Costa Rica is insane. Mexico is insane. Now it sounds like a really old man. San Francisco's insane. And this used to be the most desolate, hard, miserable place to surf. And now it's just filled with people.
1: Good for them, but bad for me. The the beach there, Ocean Beach, is notorious as one of the hardest paddle outs in the world at size. And I've only had a couple brief sessions there and and i would back that up considering the state of your lungs and your breathing patterns before you became more educated did you have or have you had any experiences there in the water or any sort of moments where you felt like you were so grateful to have a better lung capacity the the nasal breathing thing on lockdown I think it's really transformed my
2: surfing and in some ways put me in a lot more danger because I can hold my breath a lot longer because I can paddle out, you know, I'm nasal breathing as I'm paddling. out. I feel like I have a lot more power, a lot more stamina. I'm less nervous about taking a big fall because I know how to relax my body when I'm held down. And by virtue of that, you know, I've broken a bunch of boards, and some really scary experiences. So, so I, I'm not sure it was the, it's it absolutely benefited me being out in the water, um, as a free diver as, as everything, but, uh, it's also got me into a bit of, of trouble on occasions. So I'm starting to lighten up on that. I was super gung ho about like tackling big OB. For a for a long time, and you're right, the paddle out that's not really what I worry about. It's once you're out there, you're like, "Oh my God, what am I gonna do now? You know, there's just these spitting waves in every direction. they're heavy, people get hurt all the time, so um, I'm mellowing out a little bit, but trying to get out there and you know, constantly be pushing my my boundaries, but, but breathing is I absolutely essential you can push through the pain you can force yourself to hold your breath but once you really start to understand how to use your breathing to command your performance on a wave and especially to take a, a serious wipeout, really changes things it makes it in some ways a lot more pleasant because you're a lot more relaxed than you would be mm. otherwise
1: mm. i have a tendency and i did this this morning i was surfing at a local point break where we live in I had to paddle really strong to catch this one wave and when I stood up I had a bit of water in my mouth and I breathed it all out in a big puff and as I stood up and then closed my mouth and continued to ride the wave and it's one of my favorite things to do when I surf and I don't do it consciously all the time but just seems that on those more difficult, paddle in moments into a wave that that just happens and it was after reading deep a second time that I really started to notice what effect on my body that had when I closed my mouth after doing that exhale when I stood up instead of staying in the ah like full tilt surfing face that most of us have I realized if I just closed my mouth a a feeling like a ripple of relaxation went from my jaw to my shoulders my shoulders dropped and my body relaxed and the shock coming up through your board into your feet into your knees of the bumps on the wave all of those motions just stayed down in my legs and the rest of me was very relaxed so thank you for writing everything you've written in both books breath and deep um, because that's been a moment for me where I've seen that play out in a way that I wasn't forwardly thinking about. And I don't know if you have any thoughts around any any of that, but definitely want to say thank you. Oh well, t-
2: I would I would thank the researchers that that told me that. I'm just a just a chore boy here, just just a conduit <laughs> to it. But I've I've had the same experiences. Like I I really think that, and I don't know of any you know i would say competitive surfer i'd i'd say anyone that that tackles bigger waves that doesn't have the breathing under control um one big wave surfer out here says you know if you've lost your breathing if your heart rate's up you've already lost you might as well go in if that's how you're feeling when you're coming out forget it dude because not only is that going to, it's going to impact your mental ability to to get into stuff. It's going to impact you physically and being relaxed, but also extremely focused. I think in most sports is where you want to be. You can serve energy this way. You enjoy it a lot more. It's not you pushing against the wave. It's you becoming enveloped in the wave and understanding its contours. And, you know, some people like to just do 20 cutbacks just spraying shit all over and that's that's cool but uh, if i'm up on a good wave i want to understand and appreciate that that natural moment you know that's that's happening and it's just magical every single time so you know which isn't to say there's of course there's a place for mouth breathing if you're on some real heavy stuff right before you wipe out or whatever go go for it no one's judging you but you got to find what what works for you and if you look at the physiology of how we breathe and how it affects us in different ways you know that relaxed easy breathing can really benefit us and make for a better ride
0: Thanks for listening with us today. If you have a spare moment, please leave us a review or consider sharing an episode with a friend. Both help us to find the very best stories from our global community of water people. This episode was edited by Ben Alexander. The podcast soundtrack was composed by Shannon Sol Carroll, with additional tunes improvised by Dave and goofy-footed legends Neil Purchase Jr. and Christian Barker. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcasts.